Hey, and welcome to the QALead.com. Today, I have Lewis Prescott, who's a QA automation lead for Cancer Research UK. He's also a fellow Udemy course creator, uh, and he did a section around contact tracing. So check that out. And today, we're going to be talking about everything what we did over COVID with the guys at MIT and how we challenged ourselves around automation and what's coming down the line. In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad software. This podcast is brought to you by Eggplant. Eggplant helps businesses to test, monitor, and analyze their end-to-end customer experience and continuously improve their business outcomes. I'm Lewis. Uh, I currently work at Cancer Research UK. I'm the QA automation lead there. The kind of stuff that we're working on, um, working on a fun functional genome center project, uh, which is partnering with AstraZeneca, uh, which looks at cancerous cells and how we can identify those. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool project using lambda functions and testing that, um, through Python, which is new, uh, to me. But yeah, ultimately, I'm training QAs in JavaScript automation, trying to upskill them in, um, yeah, just fundamentals of automation testing, really, and using Cypress, which is a really cool new tool. Um, yeah, so I guess a little introduction. Uh, ex- uh, yeah, exciting times. You know, you've got uh, such an interesting background, um, mm. you know, coming from kind of, starting into the testing world out to out of university and then mm. you know working some, for some really interesting companies like asos um mm. doing some really like challenging i guess you know it's something that we've not had on the show yet which is kind of this mm-hmm. kind of cloud testing or testing in the cloud where you've got mm-hmm. this like you said auto scaling for something yeah. like a, an asos on a on a black friday in azure mm-hmm. and then now you're talking about kind of the you know, the serverless architecture, which, mm-hmm. you know, is, is really interesting because, you know, I don't think anyone's really talked about how you test something like that. You know, part of it yeah. is, you know, there's a lot of talk around no ops and this idea that actually mm. if it's serverless, it's going to, you know, you're going to put the code in, it's just going to execute the compute, it's mm. going to build all the resources it needs, and then it's going to destroy it afterwards once it's got the results. You know, yeah. how does that change your kind of approach to testing? Absolutely, yeah. So, so I guess that the traditional model is you you deploy your application and you test it there and you test it at all the stages uh, throughout that process. So you've got your unit tests and you've got your um, integration tests, but ultimately in the serverless architecture, you don't have that concept of integration because there is no integration points. It's just a, a snippet that that will run um and so yeah you you can just test it at a unit level and you can mock the um the trigger so your trigger for your lambda function is just a mocked event 
And so you can test all the logic within your Lambda function um, without actually having to execute it. And that, yeah, simulates the integration testing that you need to do. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really nice way to do it and everything's in code. You like, once you've written your tests, you've written your code, it's ready to go. Um, you can just deploy it up to AWS and you can be confident that it's going to, going to work. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And I was, I was reading a really interesting article from, uh, from the Microsoft, uh, Visual Studio team. We were talking about low code solutions in this kind of idea that you might want to visualize that because, you know, I think that's, to me, that's the big mm-hmm. challenge when I go into something like AWS and terraforming is that I get the infrastructure's code and the platform's code and I can read the YAML scripts and I can read the terraforming scripts but I can't visualize it, you know, mm. and, and exactly what you just said is, you know, you might have, you know, like AWS CloudWatch could be saying, you know, okay, we're going over 80%. We're going to increase, we're going to spin up more um, mm. capacity and then scale back down when capacity is low. Now to mm. do that, you've got to be able to simulate that in some kind of way. And, you know, what yeah. the, the, the visual studio low code solution was literally dragging and dropping, what was AW, uh, Azure functionality into like a flow so you could understand, well, actually, you know, these mm. are the triggers that you're doing. And to me, it's, to, it's chaos engineering. It's at, at the heart. Mm. It's kind of understanding, well, what happens if, you know, um, we get five people dropping images into, um, you know, S3 or some storage uh, and you've got to then pick those up um, remove them from the folder structure and then process them. So if it could be something like computer vision, someone's uploading a scan, you know, and then it's going to trigger that, uh, that serverless architecture. There's mm. so many different scenarios there of, of how that works and what, you know, what good looks like as well, because, mm. you know, if it runs, how, you know, how, how long should it run for, you know, depending on yeah. the complexity of the problem. So, you know, yeah. how do you know for visualizing? Do you find that you're dra- drawing diagrams or you know using like wikis to kind of explain stuff to to people who kind of question about how the architecture all fits together? Yeah, absolutely. So on the um, the genome project, we have a, a scientist assigned to our project, and he is the kind of core of of painting that picture of what it actually means um, because when you're testing you use data sets that you're kind of um you understand and you can expect the output but the, the scientific data that we're looking at is is very complex and very large so yeah he is crucial in drafting that what it's going to look like and how many levels of processes are going to happen before we get to that actual output and yeah, that was one thing that we had at the start of the project was um, our landers were timing out because of the the size of the data that we were trying to process. And we couldn't just um, throw scaling at it because it's, it is a data set which needs to be processed um, one after the other it's not a case of you can just throw loads of processes at it so yeah we we came up with a caching solution for that um but yeah ultimately all you're doing is re um retrying your lambda 
based on the cash. And so, yeah, it's definitely a tricky solution. Um, but having, having the context really helped with that. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one where you're around the caching. Cause so I, I've been a, a member of the World Community Grid um, f- since the early 90s. So I think I'm my uh, 34th in the world now, which literally I've donated mm-hmm. 40 years of CPU time. And, and it always used right. to, and, and it was around crunching cancer. And, you know, part of what I, there are huge data sets. And, you know, what it would do is I'd, I'd see it because I'd leave, I've, I've always left a server on in the cloud and I'd, I'd jump on that mm. server and want to do some performance or something. And I'd sit there and obviously I'd pause the uh, the World Community Grid agent and I'd look in the mm. folder and it had like seven, eight gig of just data, which is it's yeah. kind of paused. Uh, and then I always felt really bad that the result wasn't going to get posted until maybe my you know, my 24-hour soak test was finished, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But it's that kind of timeout thing where you've got the, well, actually one node is is doing the processing. And mm. um, and I guess this is the problem with distributed parallel processing kind of activities is if you don't get a response from one of the components, it's going to have a knock-on yeah. effect. So you're going to have to kind of resume it at that point. Um, but I guess it's just, you know, I don't even want to go into the infinite level of complexity around that. But yeah. You've got... You know, like you said, the, I mean, a data—you know—a scientist, not a data scientist for once, but a, a, a real scientist who's got yeah. to create the data and give you the kind yeah. of well, what does good look like out of the back of it? Yeah. You know, the complexity is is absolutely huge. Um, yeah. But I think it, it's a uh, to me, it, you know, what you're doing is kind of the next generation of testing because you know this kind of concept of, of no ops and and kind of autonomous capability of being able to spin up serverless architectures up with a purpose to do some activity and then spin back down kind of really changes the model of how you know some organizations work you know there's a lot of mm. pe- organizations that are used to the nine o'clock loads of people logging in five o'clock everyone's logging out you know and that's yeah. that that hardware's provisioned and it's there um yeah. and you know yes there's a bit of hotel scaling but it's always on whereas and mm. also it's kind of you're building on that you know, you're patching, you're building on top of things, you know, it's a kind of evolving uh, beast, whereas what you're doing has a specific purpose and it goes off, it delivers that purpose, then comes back. Mm. And it kind of changes the the mindset of how organizations could potentially work Mm. in the sense of, you know, okay, we need to do some, um, you know, you know, OCR with Tesseract, you know, we'll use this serverless architecture instead of mm. building services and APIs that are going to be sat waiting for, you know, the one scan a week, which, you know, might be coming through from a patents office or something and they need to scan, yeah. scan it. So, you know, it's really interesting. And, and I know you've got that kind of background where you've used, you know, you, you mentioned Cypress and some of the automation stuff and, mm. and kind of, I guess, with the, the work that you did with ASOS and more kind of, um, you know, the Azure stack, you know, do you find that it's a lot of API kind of layer stuff over automation now, or is it, you know, or is it even further now it's as kind of as code? Yeah. I mean, it's in different contexts. I think people take different approaches. Um, the, the cancer research um, kind of approach seems to be that, um, just go for the high level um, UI test just to get the coverage and then it's going to go into a support model 
where the 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 tests aren't really important so the the emphasis doesn't go into building out your your api layer tests um but yeah in other contexts we've got a payment provider and obviously yeah that's all api uh, level stuff so yeah depending on the context and also the um the level at which you want to uh, yeah it's difficult to describe it's the, it's the level of importance um that comes from the top i think um because yeah i i haven't seen an environment like at cancer research um where you've got a lot of your um high level tests and not got the lower layer but it seems to work and um ultimately it's on a budget so i can understand where they're coming from absolutely it's a really interesting concept around um you know value of tests so you know we talked Mm. uh, on one of the previous podcasts we were talking about kind of you know this value-driven approach and And like, I know you were you kind of saying that, you, you know, you do a lot of training and training up people. And, you know, I, and I think this is this kind of also, and I'm working on a, an AWS project at the moment. And, you know, one of the first things they said to me was, well, you know, we're, we've got to support this. So, you know, it's, and when they said mm. support, they meant IT operations management. They didn't yeah. mean development, right? You know, part yeah. of it was, you know, we're going to release something and it's going to go into an operational state. And then they're the ones that are actually going to be, you know, let's call it synthetic monitoring for a second. But, you know, that's yeah. what, in, in essence, you're talking about is actually your Cypress tests and stuff just become, a, you know, everything's good. You know, people can upload the file, you know, people can use the UI, you know, you know, it's just a kind of uh, a check of everything. Um, and I, I think that's where the industry seems to be going in the sense of synthetic making more realistic synthetic tests is you know is going to be a big step forwards because a lot of organizations would kind of get an api apm tool and they'd create some you know very simple happy path kind of api see if it connects or you know you get a token back or something really basic and noddy and that would be their confidence that that api gateways up and it's fully functional and like you said you know from a payments gateway perspective you know you might have a third party in there you might have someone like stripe or paypal or whoever it may be um and or will pay and you kind of you've also got to make sure that links up and running and that it's getting everything's looking good um but from an operational state and then also prioritizing what's important based on really the criticality of what it is and if you're talking about mm. healthcare and medical you know that mm. suddenly becomes incredibly critical um mm. but at the data level of of what the outcomes are more than potentially what the interface does and i think you you're right i think you've got this this kind of you know what does testing in the wild looked like because you know yeah. aws is a live service so this always kind of you know a lot of people recently have, have loved the idea that you know you can spin up containers and you could potentially mm. you know like i've i've had my you know neo4j and kafka and you know my apis all running at the same time on my laptop and i can test that like your contact uh, contract taste and what you've done before but, you know, with AWS, you're having to use the real services. You're either going through the SDK at uh, a code level or through maybe the console or a combination of both or directly to the API. 
You know, there's a mm. lot of, you know, things that you have to learn that are above and beyond just the standard testing landscape. You know, yeah. is that what you found with, you know, the, because obviously you come from Azure, ASOS, and then on to AWS, you know, have you felt mm. like you've had to kind of relearn cloud PaaS systems? Yeah. Um, they are, they are kind of uh, going in the same direction, I think now. And, um, yeah, as you say, the, the different configurations are definitely, um, there's a learning curve involved, um, mainly just around terminology and things like that, um, because they always want to have their own unique name and um, their own nuances within the kind of um, documentation and stuff. Um, so, yeah, that, that can send you in the wrong direction at times. Um, but... The, the transition has been actually quite smooth um, just based on the fact that infrastructure as code kind of makes it a um, one once you know how to do it one way you can kind of um, can kind of transition across um, so yeah it has been quite smooth actually yeah, I must admit, one of the things I'm still very unhappy with Jeff about is this, you know, their definition of security roles, you know, to me, a role is a role, right, is administrator yeah. or something, not some kind of, you know, uh, policy document that, you know, you can mm. retract and allow people to do it. But it is that kind of world at the moment. And I see why mm. they're doing it is mm. from a security testing perspective, you've got that kind of, well, how do you do a kind of a privacy by design kind of approach or the kind of the, mm. you know, the lowest level of, of, of access granted because at the end of the day that you want to make it as secure as possible, especially mm. if there's anything there, which is sensitive, you know, do you find that the security kind of thing adds an extra level of complexity or is it something mm. which is, you know, do you, does your team do any kind of security testing as well? Uh, we don't do it currently in house. Um, but yeah, on the AWS, obviously with multi-factor and stuff like that, you have to account for that in your tests. And so, yeah, you need to go through the different levels of um, security before you can even hit hit the AWS server. So, yeah, we, we've had to account for that. Um, but there's a concept of assuming roles in AWS. So, yeah, you can assume a more privileged role for read-only access and things. So, yeah, that kind of configuration takes a little while to set up. But actually, once you've got it set up, it's only set up once, and then you can use it across across your tests. Yeah, it's interesting. So we're doing, I'm working on a, an MIT project at the moment for COVID safe paths. Um, mm. And it's the same thing. We've got with the mobile app, it's got two-factor uh, two authentication. And, and so the, initially when the automation scripts, we put the automation scripts together, it yeah. was like, oh, this is a pain. Um, mm. But actually, you know, we were lucky. We're using image-based technology stack, which actually meant that it could go and grab a code from, a you know an mm. iPad, another device and and then pass it across and enter it right. um and it's it's like that kind of capture kind of problem which you used to have mm. with, with websites mm. is that you know it's great but it kind of then it hands off you know it makes it so it have to have a human involved whether it's even just yeah. sending you a message to say it's just been sent to your phone can you confirm the code 
But, yeah. you know, you've got this extra level of involvement for, for security, mm. which just makes things more complicated. And, and also the kind of how long that actually before it expires, you know, all those kind of things, which, mm. you know, it feels a, lot, a bit like the kind of the RPA world is kind of coming at us in the sense of it's, it's preparing us for this UI path, blue prism, power automate from, uh, from Microsoft to kind of get to that mm. point where now that we know this kind of stuff, we can start piecing together operationally where this kind of automation could also take advantage of, okay, yeah, well, we get these files sent to me by email every every week. I want to pick them up. You know, I'll drop it onto mm. Slack to say, here's the, here's the source files. I'll go and put it into an S3 bucket somewhere. I'll go and pick something up from there and process it. And, mm. you know, part of it is that's just an activity that becomes automated as a, 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 a through RPA. Um, mm. so you, do you see your potentially you could be transitioning at some point to be more kind of d- co- domain context focused and being more kind of, well, how can I help across the organization and not just within mm. a, a testing domain? Yeah, absolutely. So it's already happening at, um, cancer research in that, as I described earlier about the support model, um, I'm working with the um, landing zone team where it's that infrastructure team setting up all the permissions across the organization um, to access these services. And we've got some tests in there which are basically, this is the YAML file and the YAML file should contain these values. That's not like, that's not a deep level of testing or anything. It's just, basic human error which we're we're checking against and so yeah those kind of concepts are my my expertise is very valuable but it's not necessary i wouldn't classify that as testing um it's more like configuration management really and automating that configuration management um to to be more robust and so yeah as you say the kind of um, testing skills are valuable in lots of different areas within um, this context. Yeah, and I think you've just brought up a wonderful point. You know, I remember, you know, when I started in the 90s, I used to, we used to have a deployment team, right? So you'd have a dev mm. team, deployment team, ops team. Mm. And then as things came along and, you know, as Agile and DevOps kind of came along and, you know, that, deployment team which used to heavily rely on just disappeared right and it kind of blurred the boundaries which was what it was supposed to do for devops um Mm. maybe not as much operational input early on but it should have which should be there um as kind of what what should the end state look like and kind of be thinking about that from the from the sprint planning kind of uh kind of stages but you know that deployment team used to do were black magic right they used to do all sorts mm. of configuration management tasks you know and you could literally they could look at a, any file in those days but maybe just an xml config file or a schema and they could literally go yeah you've got it wrong here you're still using you know you're pointed to that ip address which is in a cdbm yeah. kind of database yeah. or something and it's incorrect and you'd be like, I could never spot that. And, you know, part yeah. of it now is actually that is what you're kind of doing is you're kind of getting to that mm. point where your kind of your eyes are on everything. And, mm. you know, you you have to understand enough to be able to kind of 
switch between an opera ops a deployment engineer and, and i had a, i did have a podcast with somebody quite recently who talked about this qa release manager uh, mm. and i thought or a release qa and i was like this is quite a fascinating idea of somebody who is just there to kind of help bridge that gap a little bit um and you know on the other right-hand side a little bit, we've got the, the site reliability engineers, right? Those guys mm. that are in uh, production who are kind of looking at, well, you know, how do we make this more robust? How do we avoid these issues? And also from mm. a kind of, like you said, from an ops point of view is if something goes wrong, you know, how do they switch the right configuration back? How do they green light back to the last, you know, yeah. known reliable build without losing anything which they've got? Um, and I think this is kind of where DevOps was wanting to be, you know, mm. five years ago, but it wasn't, didn't make it. And it's kind of this ops dev approach where actually you're getting more input from operational endpoints of where you're thinking, well, what should it be? How do I maintain mm. it there? And also, you know, not just a wiki that's in the test repo somewhere. It's actually, mm. okay, I've got this YAML file in front of me. Oh, I know that this should be set to whatever. And if I want to roll it back, I need to set these flags here and, mm. you know, com commit it or something. And, you know, I think it's a kind of a bold new world and maybe we are getting to that level where it's, there is, there, we won't need these silos of, 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 mm. of dev ops and, and, and test teams. And maybe, mm. you know, this is the next generation of where we should, the next way of evolution we should be going to. Um, yeah. I think um, with shift right, I think that will kind of cater to to improve people's knowledge of the operation side because putting things behind feature flags or changing configuration production so that you can test something um, will cater for for that right and and then you kind of hopefully lose some of the environments that you have. I mean, we have four or five environments before we get to production, which is just ridiculous. Um, why, why do we need all those when we can just deploy to production behind a feature flag? Um, so yeah, I think, I think hopefully the move will, will transition QAs into being more like release and, and focus on um, production. Yeah, and, and, and this is a kind of a really good example I mentioned with the gluten-free kind of uh, challenge, you know, it was really interesting because I was part of the team that kind of helped with that in the UK. And so we've seen in the US and they, they were using uh, an APM Splunk at the time and they were looking at the numbers and, you know, they'd have reports coming out every couple of weeks. And, you know, of course they were looking at the, the gluten adoption. Um, and, you know, but a, the original concept came from, from marketing, right? So marketing kind of said, yeah, well, we're seeing other organizations. We've read articles that saying there's potentially going to be 8% growth in your, your products based on opening this new line. So it got approval. You know, there was a business justification for it. And then on the other side, they saw this growth and it, you know, they look, kept on looking at it and, you know, someone would, was responsible to kind of make sure that, um, you know, the cost of the gluten-free products didn't overweigh the, the, the cost of, of the, the additional revenue generated. And it didn't have to be revenue focused, but it just in this example, <clears throat> So in the UK, we said, we'll do the same thing. You know, we did, we did, we, we kind of 12 weeks introduced the back end, front end, e-commerce, <clears throat> all the stores around the UK. And we we're all high-fiving each other, kind of going, brought this new line to market in 12 weeks. Brilliant. 
went off flawlessly and, you know, exactly the same thing, same, same adoption rates, same numbers coming out at the back end. They're on different stacks. Um, but yeah, we still could get the same measurements and, mm. you know, they, we were, they were so happy. So we were going to do this, this great DevOps presentation, you know, it was a six months, eight months later. And, you know, I kind of pulled the IT director in and we're going to present it. And um, I kind of said to him, I said, um, because our team had finished on there, because we, we finished on that particular piece of work. And I said, oh, so how, how is it doing? He says, it's, you know, it's fantastic. You know, it got up to, you know, 14%. You know, we, we've, you know, really great initiative, you know, great time, great case study. So, so let's go and have a look. And we went in and, you know, went into kind of their teams were all nicely mixed up and someone let me have access to Splunk. And I kind of was like, oh, this is not looking great. I was like, you know, this, the numbers aren't what we're talking talking about. It was like they were. And he just kind of pulled it back and looked at the end of last month when he looked at it last. And he, what that was saying 12% and he was happy. And I said, oh, so what, why is this dropped off? And he was like, well, I have no idea. And I said, well, um, you know, what's changed? He said, oh, well, we've actually just launched on the front page a new stack of, you know, exciting products for the World Cup or whatever it was. And, you know, the gluten products aren't advertised on the front anymore. You know, there's no kind of, you know, messaging on there. There's no emails going out from marketing. You know, it's kind of that's done as far as we're concerned. Um, I said, so what does that mean uh, and it, as far as cost? And he said, oh, well, you know, we'll have a look and went into the back end and realized that we were making like tens of thousands of pounds of loss to each franchise with mm. gluten-free products which were going off. Um, but I was kind of at that time, I was kind of obviously, you know, I was I was really excited that I'd spotted it, but I was kind of thinking, you know, at what point does something go to the end of life? And you know, teams, mm. you know, feature teams will will appear and disappear, but you mm. know, how does the business continuously understand whether yeah. or not that functionality and, and behavior is still relevant and it's still appropriate? And I think that's where the last mile. What you're talking about here is is that's the last mile of where operations is kind of continuously mm. looking at that and kind of going, okay, there's something wrong there. We're seeing a decrease in, if it was ASOS, if it was trainers or something, mm. what is this related to? And what does that mean mm. for the hypothesis that we had, which was if we bring this new AR capability out, which will actually take photos of trainers, it'll match it to the newest trainers, you know, what uh, Jay-Z's wearing or whatever to, to, mm. to kind of go make it quickly. But that's not the case anymore. People aren't looking at, you know, trainers. Is it a competitor who's brought something different out mm. in? And they're doing kind of a SWOT analysis. You know, it, it, mm. it feels like that's the, that's the last mile of the business side mm. of things, which we've not thought about. It might not be kind of relevant yeah. with the cancer research guys because, you know, they're kind of in in it to win it. But, you know, definitely mm. for, for organizations to continuously prove the yeah. value of what has been delivered historically and that could be days mm. weeks years ago um and no mm. no one ever does that it's like the old you know word thing where you know bill says oh we're taking loads of features out of word like mail merge and mm. stuff because nobody's ever mm. using them if you don't know they're not using yeah. them why are you supporting them and testing them each yeah. time yeah and i think um being much more aligned to marketing is, is crucial for a business like marketing teams run a b tests all the time to test different um paths and workflows and then that gets fed back into the dev team but why aren't the marketing team just part of your dev team and then yeah you you close that loop right and then they're going to be constant 
constantly looking at what is actually happening to production because they're the ones that care about it. Yeah, um, and, and that's what happened actually in the UK. The IT director, which was one of these big things, put marketing from the floor below into the teams. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this thing where he had to mix everybody up so nobody was sat next to each other who had the same roles. Um, yeah. And I thought at the time I was like, this is just nuts. And then he got on a, a on a board which kind of said if they got if any of the teams had got extra capacity within their sprint, that mm. they could come in and prioritise what was kind of valuable for them to get in next um, or add right. something in there. And that was brilliant because they kind of had seen how a campaign had been formed, like if you were doing a sneaker campaign, mm. and then they kind of looked at something a little bit differently and said, okay, actually, if we can, we'd like it so you can you can add your sneaker into the, you know, your profile, you know, like you, with mm. a Nike app or something. And they'd, they'd yeah. go, can we do that within the last three days? And people go, oh, yeah, that's just an extra, you know, an extra field mm. and an extra, you know, yeah. no problems, leave it with us kind of thing. Um, mm. And it, it feels like, actually, you're right, is, you know, marketing mm. slash the business, this biz ops kind of approach, which, mm. you know, Mm. We could have added anything on ops or dev just to to get some yeah, yeah. kind of traction on it, but you're absolutely right. It's like like marketing, like you know, like you said for kind of whatever the activity is, or the science, you know, having your your actual mm. uh, scientist there is, you know, part of it is you need to flex mm. with what's required from the business, not IT for IT, but IT to yeah. serve a purpose for the customer. Mm. So in well ended last year but i was um running a co-club so going into schools and teaching um nine to eleven year olds how to code and i think that's the future is where all these kids are going to learn to code as if it's another language like we did at school and then every job role is they'll have the ability to speak to programmers they'll have the ability to write code themselves and so it will just be one of the core sciences really is programming and then yeah you don't have that barrier anymore of someone going i've got to speak to a developer because i don't know i don't understand the code you won't have that anymore it's, it's fascinating you know the whole stem kind of concept is kind of preparing the next generation um and I, I think it's fascinating. It must, and, and also it must be really rewarding to kind of get, you probably get lots of mm. feedback of things that you hadn't really thought about that maybe the, their perspective kind of said, well, why is this? You know, did, did you, you feel that that was kind of the case, that there was some, some ones that had like great insight into kind of what you were, you, you, lessons that maybe you've learned over your, your career? Yeah, the, the kids have a, a completely different view on it. Um, and at Code Club, you gamify everything so that they to keep their interest. And the the kind of things that they focus on, you just wouldn't think about. Like you're thinking about the end end goal, um, but half the time they just want to color in the character or make the the character spin around in a circle infinitely and things like that. Like their creativity is just huge. And I think especially working in QA, we can get stuck in the, okay, this is how it's meant to work and this is the the output that we're looking for. But actually what we should be doing is is thinking about, okay, there's hundreds of users using this in different ways. What's a random thing that they could think about? 
Um, and yeah, I think the kids, kids really gave me a good insight into actually the capability of what you can do is endless. Um, and a game is not just what it's, it says it does on, on the, uh, rules and instructions. Yeah, no, I think, again, fascinating kind of topic there in the sense of, you know, I guess part of having a role or a persona or a, a, a silo is you kind of feel fairly restricted. You know, if you were looking at something and you said, you know what, I think this, you know, if this was done in a different way, it would be better. And, you know, is is it your position to kind of go and speak to somebody like the product owner? And I guess this is why kind of product engineering has kind of come together is that the product team has a view and that view. And I, and I, when I was based in Silicon Valley, you know, I, I was a product owner and I, you know, I believed that I knew, right. I knew what, you know, people mm. were asking for within the, the our customers, but you know, that didn't mean that I was right. I could have been pl- taking mm. the product in a completely wrong direction because, you know, I'm taking it from a sample customer base and, and mm. you know, that's that's kind of when can you, who should be challenging who, you know, there's no longer any structure. It's kind of ideas, mm. you know, it's this kind of, I guess a few years ago, yeah. we would have called it innovation labs, right? Where mm. anyone within the organization could say, you know, I know, why don't we give free coffee and then, you know, see what happens, right? Um, yeah. but I, you know, I, I actually went in to see those guys in um, uh, at JLP for the that, that same problem. And, and and it's really interesting because the guy who uh, suggested this from, and we've all heard the story, but the, the, the warehouse at, uh, at uh, Waitrose or John Lewis said, you know, because anyone was able to suggest any kind of new invent- innovation, um, so they brought it, they rolled it out, and then they're rolling it out back now because of uh, they're now the third biggest supplier of ca- uh, of coffee beans in the UK. So it, I, it, interestingly, you know, not Starbucks don't even make the top mm. five, five. You've got McDonald's mm. at the top just be it by sheer amount yeah. of things. Yeah. And now Waitrose well, isn't a way, you know, Waitrose is now buying coffee, right, um, which is a commodity. Mm. Um, and then, you know, it was the interesting, I think the end point, which kind of finished them off was the, um, was Canary Wharf that famously at the top of, as you get out of Canary Wharf, you go straight into Waitrose. They had six machines, which were always spinning off, you know, coffee where people were just going in and saving themselves six pounds from their normal coffee restaurant before going into work. And they were the first yeah. branch to ever make a loss. And, you know, actually, even though it was a great idea, there was no way to prove the hypothesis like the footfall increase mm. are brought because of coffee versus, you know, how much money they were spending on free coffee. Um, and I think yeah. that's the thing is that even though it was a great idea and someone also made a great idea, uh, which was they talked about free Wi-Fi and, and that, you know, that's a normal kind of thing we request. But then the implementation state, uh, team put it on the same Wi-Fi as the tills, what brought down the tills. So it backfired and cost them a huge amount of money because people were downloading like the latest episode of Game of Thrones yeah. or whatever it, while they were going to get yeah. with their free coffee. So there's, there's certain things which kind of are oh, sound like a really good idea, uh, but actually until you can prove it in mm. in a controlled environment, you and yeah. continuously to monitor it, there's no way you can actually kind of validate mm. that that actually is a good idea and it should continue. Um, and I think, you know, this is the, the, the next challenge is, is brand. And, you know, I think brand is so mm. important. And someone like Cancer Research is, is mm. so important to, to keep that brand integrity to be there and not be, 
you know, on the news for doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, but actually doing something yeah. that's that's good. Um, and I, I mm. love the ideas what you talked about gamification. I'm on a, a, a I'm part of a gamification um, workshop team. What uh, we have a every week every, every friday and um it's really interesting uh, the one of the examples is for a, a similar kind of um charity who are trying to get people to um do more exercise right um so part mm. of it was pre-covid they were you know giving people points for going swimming mm. so you know if you went yep. to the swimming baths you'd get like x amount of points you'd scan it or you know you'd you'd organize a tea group where you'd all go or whatever it was uh, and they gamified the app to make people want to keep mm. on coming back and um unfortunately you know due, during covid they're now looking at well mm. what other ways can we get people to yeah. you know exercise and be healthy and you know i think mm. gamification or enterprise gamification is essential because people like game mechanics and they mm. to, if you're looking at you know engagement rates you want people to keep on coming back like your donors that are donating to cancer mm. research which is a great cause you know part of it is giving them badges you know and i know angie did a did her 50th um 50th member of the test automation universe and she did a live mm. event yesterday and she was handing out badges mm. now these weren't physical mm. badges these were literally just a limited edition 50th anniversary badge mm. right and so it's mm. the same kind of thing people will do that they'll keep on coming back yeah. because the badges or you know scoreboards have been you know the you know anonymously being in the top 50 or you know the, the mm. or something you know it's something that keeps people going um and i think that so, really interesting dynamic yeah so a new feature that we're rolling out um at cancer research is we're adding strava integration to the fundraising pages so now you gamify it, right? Like now your fundraising page doesn't just show you I've raised this much money. It shows you I've done this much activity and um, here's, here's what I can. And Strava perfectly simulates that, right? Like you get the league tables in Strava, you're the top 10 in this section and things like that. So yeah, hopefully we'll bring that kind of... Um, competition to our fundraising pages as well yeah no and and i think this is again a really interesting aspect of gamifying is like also sharing you know on social media it's kind of Mm. one of those kind of uh i'm gonna call it the wild west for a moment but you know if if i was in an app like your app and i kind of wanted to share that and say you know share it with my friends and say you should go and do this just giving or whatever platform they're using you know tracking that to then say actually you've got the most amount of things or you know gamifying it it just feels like when you're looking at a marketing division they're incredibly social analytics is you know they've got all these dashboards they understand influencers they understand the reach of your network and but we don't look at that as a final frontier we don't kind of look at it as well we're capturing all the times when you know someone gets a bad error message and it kind of it seems a bit strange. So we don't really investigate. Someone's just taking a screenshot and at somebody at it. And maybe someone from marketing mm. passes it into a service ticket or something, but not very likely. Um, or mm. some operations will be monitoring it from a kind of a, a champion perspective on the community. But still, you know, there's all that information out there and it feels like, you know, mm. that is actually help should be helping us. You know, events happening, you know, automatically replying to someone and say, well, why don't you donate or, you know, do this? You know, it feels mm. like 
there is this this social kind of aspect of it where I think we can all do more, um, and it's mm. getting that engagement. You know, I don't think email is is the the future for you know getting yeah. people involved. Um, so you know, it'd be really interesting to see how all the, especially once you've 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 rolled that out what those dynamics mm. look like when people can do scoreboards and when they're donating mm. and, and how that does keep people going. You know, like I said, I, I've done, you know, since the nineties, I've been doing this 30 years or something. And it, I, I will keep on running world community grid because I don't want to lose my standing in the, in the community. Right. Um, yeah. and, you know, does that make my, my office incredibly hot in summer? Yes. Because all my <laughs> CPUs are just running all the time. Um, but yeah. it's 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 something I'm happy to do, and you know, hopefully, it makes a difference. But it's that same kind of thing: is people will do it if they can mm. see some kind of benefit of, of of what they're they're making a you know a difference. And and I think something mm. like the Cancer Research UK, people are making a massive difference by donating mm. by the work that you you guys are doing, uh, and also just kind of how you know you engage with you know how you take the technology in the next generation so it's it's been absolutely fascinating to chat with you and we will have to get you back on when you've got a little you know you've you've done that and you've maybe got Mm. something to talk about in the gamification and 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 what your kind of next big challenge is absolutely yeah i'd love to um to come back on and talk about that fantastic well it's been an absolute pleasure lewis And, and for those listeners out there what's the easiest ways to kind of get in touch with you is it linkedin or, or how to con- best to contact you yeah i'm on twitter um my handle is weed prescott um and yeah just hit me up lewisprescott.co.uk or attend one of your your, your coding workshops if you have got there's an age gap i guess on there yeah yeah um i uh, yeah i'm happy to do uh to adult sessions as well um but yeah so um yeah just reach out and i'm happy to to offer my expertise fantastic well thanks lewis you're doing some fantastic work and uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show thank you so much